W.H. Griffith Thomas, the theologian that was supposed to help Lewis Perry Chafer found Dallas Seminary in 1924, but actually died in the spring prior to the seminary opening, once wrote, If you wish to know whether a man is a theologian, turn to his Greek text testament. And if it opens on its own accord to the fifth chapter of Romans, and you find the pages worn and brown, you may safely set him down as a devotee of the sacred science. Well, I don't know about that, but this is certainly one of the most challenging passages in the book of Romans from an exegetical and a theological standpoint, and many would consider it to be one of the most important theological sections of the entire New Testament. That is Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. In this passage, Paul teaches that all people stand in relationship to one of two men whose actions determine the eternal destiny of all who belong to him. Either one belongs to Adam and is under the sentence of death because of his sin, because of Adam's sin, or because of Adam's disobedience, or one belongs to Christ and is assured of eternal life because of his righteous act of obedience. If I could, I want to remind you of the grid that I introduced to you last time, this was two weeks ago, that I think will help you to understand this very complicated, very theological passage much better. It's a grid that if we could place it on top of the entire text and, and, and remember it, will help you to come up with a good understanding. It basically goes like this. One disobeyed, resulting in death. One obeyed, resulting in life. The one who disobeyed, of course, was Adam. And the one who obeyed, of course, was Christ. And if you'll keep that grid and lay it over the entire text, it'll make a lot more sense to you. The two acts while momentous in their significance, are not equal in power. Christ's act is able to completely overcome the effects of Adam's act. Anyone who receives the gift that God offers in Christ finds security and joy in knowing that the reign of death has been completely and finally overcome by the reign of grace, righteousness, and eternal life. The point of this passage this very wonderful, beautiful, but complicated theological passage is that you are going to be identified with one of two people, one of two men in this passage. You'll either be identified with the one who disobeyed and it will result in death, or you'll be identified with the one who obeyed and it will result in life. Now we'll find out a little bit later as the passage moves on that everyone, as you start off, is, is identified with the one who disobeyed and spiritual death. Everyone is going to be identified with that person. But you have a choice to make, and you can choose to not be identified with Adam anymore in spiritual death and physical death too. Although you won't ever get, get rid of physical death, but physical death is part of the, the punishment for Adam's sin. But you can be identified with Christ and receive eternal life. That's the grid. If you can keep that in mind, this passage will make lots and lots of sense to you, and you'll see how wonderfully beautiful it is. The great theme of this paragraph... Christ's act of obedience is powerful enough to overcome Adam's act of disobedience. I want you to see that too. These are not two equal acts. Christ's act is powerful enough to overcome the act of disobedience from Adam. 
This passage in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, shows why those who have been justified and reconciled can be certain that they will be saved from wrath and share in the glory of God. It is because Christ's act of obedience ensures eternal life for all those who are in Christ. A very technical Pauline theological term. Now we get to verse 12, and it goes like this. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then most of your Bibles will have a double dash after the word sin, meaning that it looks like the sentence is cut off in midstream. At least the New American Standard charts it out that way. It could be translated, therefore, or literally, because of this, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Ordinarily, when a writer begins a Greek sentence with the term translated here, just as, he's introducing a comparative sentence that would end in, so also. Do you see that in verse 12? Therefore, just as. Now, do you see the so also at the end of the verse? You better say no, because it's not there. That was a trick question. Paul doesn't do that here. And because of this, most New Testament scholars conclude that Paul starts a comparison in this sentence that he does not finish. At least he doesn't finish it grammatically. This is what grammarians, grammarians called an anacoluthan. The one man, again referred to in verse 12, is of course Adam, whose very name in Hebrew, Adam, means man. The noun for sin here is in the singular, which we'll find is characteristic of Paul from this point on in Romans chapter 5 all the way through chapter 8 verse 13. Sin has an active role in this section of Romans. Paul is personifying sin in that. He says sin reigns in verse 21 of chapter 5. Sin can be obeyed in chapter 6 verses 16 and 17. Sin pays wages chapter 6 verse 23 sin seizes opportunity in chapter 7 verses 8 and 11 and sin deceives and kills in chapter 7 verse 11 and 13 do you see a progression there it starts off by reigning and ends up by deceiving and killing a person Paul is no friend to sin while we might take it lightly, the Apostle Paul didn't take it lightly. Sin is deadly. Sin is deadly to our spiritual lives. We should never be flippant about it. So in a word, Paul personifies sin, picturing it as a power that holds sway in the world outside of Christ, bringing disaster and death on all humanity. The fact that Paul attributes this sin to Adam is significant. Since Paul certainly understood that Eve sinned first, he wrote about it in two separate places, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, and 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. But the point is that Eve was deceived in her sin, while Adam was not. Adam was in leadership over the woman and knew full well what he's doing. Just like we know full well what we're doing when we sin, at least the vast majority of the time. We may be like a little child say, well, I didn't know. I didn't know that I was supposed to take that candy from the store without paying for it, Daddy. Uh, yeah, you really did. That's why you put it in your pocket and kind of walked out sideways. Yes, you knew that what you were doing was wrong. So most of the time, when we pretend that we didn't know that it was a sin, we're just 
pretending. And we're trying to fool God, who's omniscient, has all the facts, and that's not a really wise move. There are times when we sin unknowingly. It's still sin. We chose to do it. Violates the holiness of God. But most of the time, we sin willfully. We sin in open and honest rebellion against God. The last time we met to study Romans, we finished up the class by going back to Genesis and to study a little bit about the event which Paul refers to in chapter 5, verse 12. But tonight, we consider the last phrase of verse 12, the phrase that has the double dash after it, because all sinned. Now, some have added, understanding this to be a type of ellipsis in the grammar, because all sinned when Adam sinned, because remember, we're going back to the, uh, to the event of the first sin. Now, here's where the discussion gets good. What can Paul mean here that all sinned, or all sinned when Adam sinned? In what sense do we share in the sin of Adam? How is it fair for God to associate me with a sin, and not just the sin, but the penalty of that sin that occurred over 6,000 years ago, at least 6,000 years ago. I wasn't there, were you? I didn't take the fruit from the hand of the woman and eat it, did you? No. Unfair. Unfair, we might say. Well, we might say that, but let's not say it so fast. Before we accuse God of unfairness, Let's take a closer look at the theology of this passage. Now allow me to begin a study of this passage with the subject, a very theological subject, of imputation. In the matter of man's relation to God, the Bible presents three major imputations. Some list four. We can talk about that after the class tonight if you want to know what the fourth one is. But some list four, but tonight we're going to stay with the big three. Now listen very, very carefully, because one comes up in this passage. First, the imputation of the Adamic sin to the human race. The imputation of Adam's sin to the human race. That's, of course, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. The second major imputation, and by the way, these are imputations that most all Protestant theologians agree with, uh, the second major imputation, the imputation of the sin of man to the substitute, Jesus Christ. And the third imputation, the imputation of the righteousness of God to the believer, also known as justification. So three major imputations that all Protestant evangelical theologians agree with, the imputation of Adamic sin to the human race, the imputation of the sin of man to the substitute, Jesus Christ, and the imputation of the righteousness of God to the believer. Now, imputations can be either what theologians call real imputations, or they can be judicial imputations. And for some, I know this is something that you're fairly well familiar with. And for others, this may be brand new material for you. If it is, again, please, let's stay afterwards. We can talk. We'll review some of it next week, of course. But I want you to get this, because without this framework, if this will help you to pay attention, without this framework, you will not understand chapter 6. 
And chapter 6 is huge for your spiritual life. So Paul's going to lay down some, some framework here that we have to have before we're going to get this, this incredibly important information beginning in chapter 6. So I want you to get it. Imputations can either be real or judicial. Now let me explain the difference between those. A real, a real imputation is the reckoning to one that which is antecedently his. Okay? The reckoning to one that which is antecedently his, while a judicial imputation is the reckoning to one to that which is not antecedently his. I'm going to illustrate but let's get the technical language down first. A real imputation is the reckoning to one that which is antecedently his, while a judicial imputation is the reckoning to one that which is not antecedently his. Now let me illustrate, and I want to do it straight from the Scriptures. Remember Paul in his letter to Philemon. Uh, Paul is writing Philemon, who is a friend of his, about a runaway slave named Onesimus that Paul had met while uh, in prison in Rome. In fact, we're going to probably study Philemon when we finish the book of Colossians, because Philemon lived in Colossae. They were written together. As a matter of fact, many commentaries have uh, Col uh, Colossians and Philemon are, are together for that reason. But now listen to what Paul tells Philemon about this runaway slave, Onesimus. Listen carefully and see if you can fit in the idea of imputation here. Paul says, if then you regard me as a partner, he's talking to Philemon, if you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now think for a second. Paul says, if he owes you anything, if Onesimus owes you anything, charge it to my account. Now, is that an, an illustration of a real or a judicial imputation? I heard both. Actually, let's go back over it again. Onesimus is the one that's guilty. Okay? Onesimus was a runaway slave. Paul is bringing Onesimus back to Colossae to be united with Philemon. Paul is telling Philemon, I'm going to fill in some of the blanks, don't kill him. Because, see, he had a right as a Roman citizen to execute a runaway slave. Uh, we don't know. There's an implication. There's a hint. I'm not sure we'd have to look into it more deeply. We will that maybe Philemon might have taken a little bit on his way out. It's hard to say. But, Paul, but Paul's saying now, if he owes you anything, I want you to charge it to me. Now, was that something that was antecedently Paul's? No. See, it was antecedently Onesimus's. So that would be a judicial imputation. Okay. Now, when we say... The second imputation, the imputation of the sin of man to the substitute Jesus Christ. Is that a real imputation or is that a judicial imputation? Think before you say this because you don't want to get this one wrong. <laughs> it's judicial all the way. There is no affinity whatsoever. There's no antecedents at all in Jesus Christ for my sin. Heaven forbid we ever say that's a real imputation. And again, I know this is heavy theology, but this, will, this is a framework that we must have to appreciate chapter 6 and the uh, chapters that follow. Now, the imputation of the righteousness of God to the believer, real imputation or judicial imputation, that's judicial also. I have no affinity for God's righteousness. In fact, if I'm identified with Adam, it's just totally an act of grace on God's part to even let me be a part of that righteousness. It's a judicial imputation. So, the imputation of the sin of man to the substitute, Jesus Christ, number two, is judicial. 
The imputation of the righteousness of God to the believer is judicial. Because neither in neither one uh, does the antecedent fit what's... There's no antecedent for what's being imputed. Does that make sense so far? Now, those are relatively straightforward. As I think once we... Once we broke it down with Philemon, I, I didn't explain it well enough at first, I don't believe, but once we broke it down, I think you can see that that too is judicial because it was Onesimus' debt that Paul was willing to pay. Now for the more difficult one. The imputation of the Adamic sin to the human race. Real or judicial? Don't answer yet. I want to, let me put it this way. The way Paul phrases it in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, this is a real imputation. Again, we get back to the questions we had a minute ago. You may say, hold on, time out, this is Adam's sin. This is more like Onesimus and Philemon. You know, Onesimus is the one that owed the debt, not Paul. You just said a minute ago, that was judicial. Why is this real? Because it was Adam's debt. It wasn't mine. How can you call it a real imputation? That's the crux of the whole passage. That's why people have yelled unfair in the past. Because there didn't seem to be any affinity, but Paul says there is. In fact, he says, for all, because all sin. Again, look back at our passage. Therefore, just as through one man, top line, sin entered into the world. By the way, that also tells me that sin predated Adam. Sin, sin was already in existence and came into the world. How could I say sin predated Adam? Where could that possibly have come from? Satan. Satan. Exactly right. Sin entered in the world. S- Satan is the one that invented rebellion against God. He was the first rebeller. Adam wasn't the first. A, a third of the angels fell. And then comes Adam. Adam was the first human rebeller against, well, second, but his is the one that was done in uh, in cognizance therefore just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin that's the penalty of Adam's sin death and that death includes both and this is important for you to remember too it includes both physical death and spiritual death if you search the commentaries on Romans you see them about split a lot of commentators believe that this word right here refers strictly to physical death Others believe it refers strictly to spiritual death. It really refers to both, because the reason we have physical death is because Adam sinned. But we also had spiritual death as well. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, he said, The day you should eat of this fruit, dying you will die, which is is a poor understanding. It's you will surely, absolutely, 100%, you're going to die. Well, they didn't die physically immediately, did they? But the death process started as soon as they ate the fruit. Now, it took 900 years, but they did die. The reason that people sit by graves, the reason that, that people sit by beds with loved ones dying, is because of what Adam did in sin. Never take disobedience against God lightly. The reason we have all this suffering is because this man rebelled against God. Sometimes I think the reason we take sin lightly is we don't see immediate results. But as soon, as soon as Adam sinned, the results begin to flow. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, both physical and spiritual death, 
Remember, death in the Bible is essentially separation. Physical death is the separation of the, uh, the soul from the body. Spiritual death is the separation between man and God. And death, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The way Paul phrases it, as far as he's concerned, it's a real imputation. Because he says, we sinned. It's as if we were there. Before I go any further here, let me make sure you understand the difference between two very uh, more theological concepts. Uh, but we just need to make sure these are on your plate. Namely, inherited sin and imputed sin. And the best way I could do this is to uh, just diagram for you very, very briefly. Inherited sin would be diagrammed something like this. Adam, the inherited sin passes from Adam to Adam's offspring, to their offspring, to their offspring, ultimately to your parents, and then to you. Sometimes we we understand this as the, the sinful nature that man has. It's passed down through your parents. That's what theologians call inherited sin. Now there's a very, very similar word, the one we're studying tonight, and that's imputed sin. This would be diagrammed a bit differently. And uh, I'll do it this way in green so you see the difference. This came down directly from Adam to your parents to you. The uh, Adam's imputed sin doesn't come this way. It comes like this. Adam to his children, to his children, to his parents, and then finally to you. Inherited sin, the sinful nature, comes straight down a line of progeny from Adam. Imputed sin goes straight from Adam by God to you. It doesn't pass through your parents. I told you you might want to ask questions afterwards. Now you see why. The only exception, of course, in history with regard to inherited sin and imputed sin both is Jesus Christ. Now, there are two major views within evangelical Christianity regarding the imputation of Adam's sin, this side over here, and the relationship of the human race with Adam. And again, remember, this verse says, So death spread to all men because all sinned. And remember, our question we're asking tonight is, How so, Paul? How did I sin when I wasn't there 6,000 plus years ago? There are... At least two. Now, if you were in a theology class at College of Biblical Studies or Dallas Seminary, they would teach you more views than what I'm going to present to you tonight. But I at least want to give you the major two. I don't ordinarily do this. Ordinarily, I would give you the view that I believe is, is the, the correct view, the orthodox view, the biblical view. But uh, since there are very, very good theologians that are going to be on both sides of this issue that I'm going to place on the board... I want to give you a taste of both of these views, and then I'm going to let you know where I come down between the two. I do believe, the reason I decided to do this yesterday when I was putting this together, 
was I think that you are theologically sophisticated enough that you can handle this. At least you should be by this time in your Christian education. So let me allow me now to explain the two major views with regard to how in the world am I associated with Adam when it comes to Adam's sin. How can I be blamed when Adam's the one that did it? Now, doesn't that sound like a fair question? I mean, maybe you've never asked it, but literally millions of people have. And a lot of pagan unbelievers say that's the problem with Christianity. Now, you need to be aware of this if you're going to be out there ministering to people who are unbelievers. That's called evangelism. You need to be able to answer this. The people say, well, listen, there's, Christianity is flawed from the very beginning. Because Christianity, in Christianity, I'm being blamed. You're, you're telling me God blames me for something that a guy that I never met did? Okay, you, you see the problem that they might have with it. Because that's exactly what Paul does. That's one thing we need to start with. We, we can't wiggle out of it. So, well, maybe, maybe that's not what happened. And that's what, in a sense, I believe the Arminians did at one point. They tried to wiggle out. So, well, maybe that's not what it means at all. Well, yes, it is what it means. And now we need to discuss the two views. The two views go by the name, the representative view, and a view called the seminal view. First, the representative view. The representative view is also sometimes called the federal headship view. This views Adam as the representative of the whole human race, so that when Adam sinned his sin, this became the ground of condemnation of his race. Let me say that one more time. This views Adam as the representative of the whole human race, so that when Adam sinned his sin, this sin became the ground of condemnation for his race. Adam represented us. No one but Adam committed, actually committed that first sin. But since Adam represented all people, God viewed us all as involved and thus condemned. Does that make sense? That's called the representative view. Adam represented me. Granted, I wasn't there. But Adam is sometimes called the federal head of the human race. He made a decision that affected all of us. Let me illustrate, and I know this is at the risk of oversimplifying, but we say today that the United States went to war against Japan in 1941. My father was a youngster back then. He was a citizen of the United States. But I don't remember Dad having any voice in the decision to go to war with Japan. We might say that Franklin Roosevelt made the decision. And again, I, I say that at the risk of oversimplification. But the decision of one man as the representative head of the nation had ramifications for all the citizens of the United States. Franklin Roosevelt represented the people of the United States and then made a decision to go to war. And as a result of that decision, many people had to die. Many people went, went through hardships that never voted for it. However, any reasonable person, and I know there are different theories of history, just track with me on this if you could, but any reasonable person that was in Franklin Roosevelt's shoes would have also declared war on Pearl Harbor with the same information that he had. Again, does that make sense? And I know some World War II buffs were going to wiggle on that, but just track with me. 
you would have made the same decision that Franklin Roosevelt made had you got the news that Pearl Harbor was bombed. You'd have gone to Congress and you'd have asked them to declare war. So he made the decision, but it was a decision that, reasonably speaking, any other person would would have also made. Now, historically, you need to know there's a, a, a man by the name of Charles Hodge, H-O-D-G-E, Charles Hodge, is a theologian in the 1800s that is primarily associated with this view. Charles Hodge was was an outstanding theologian. Charles Hodge was a a Calvinistic theologian, wrote a three-volume systematic theology that is still used today. Very, very well-respected man. Now, there's another view, and that's called the seminal view, which I have on the board uh, to my left, to your right. This view sees Adam as containing the seed, hence we get the word seminal from, containing the seed of all of his posterity, so that when he sinned, all actually sinned. Now you're seeing the difference. I don't want you to miss it. In the representative view, Adam sinned for us. In the seminal view, we actually sinned. So again, This view sees Adam as containing the seed of all of his posterity, so that when he sinned, all actually sinned. Mankind was not merely represented by Adam, but was actually organically joined to Adam. And the reason for it is, that's the word seminal, because you were in his loins. We were all in his loins, in his genetics, when he sinned. So, in this sense, this view would hold that You were there. Now, you don't remember being there, but you were there in the seminal view. Thus, Adam's sin was imputed to each member of the human race because each member actually sinned in Adam when Adam sinned. That's the seminal view. You were there. You sinned with him. Now, the man that is most well known for holding this, it's William Shedd, right? Yeah. William Shedd. William G.T. Shedd, also a Reformed theologian, also in the 1800s, also extremely well respected. This is something I come across when I study theology, and I'm sure Paul and Will do as well. When you come across views like this that have two extremely well um, respected theologians, and they're taking opposite sides of the same view, this is when I start treading lightly as far as is really coming down in harsh condemnation against one side or the other. Now, just because of time, and again, I'll stay as long as you want and talk afterwards, I want to tell you which view I hold to, and I'm going to give you the reasons that I do. I hold to the representative view. Now, let me tell you three reasons why. The first one is, no matter how you slice it, I had no actual say in what Adam did. I'm being blamed for it, and you're being blamed for it, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, which is why this seminal view puts us there. It's a little bit more comfortable. But I actually had no say. Whether I was in Adam's seminal fluid or not, uh, I was 6,000 years away from being born, certainly didn't have a, a cognitive thought, and ordinarily you need to have a cognitive thought associated with the sin. Ordinarily, if, if I'm going to actually be uh, sinning. 
even though I didn't have any actual say in what Adam did, now here's the, here's the key point, I would have done the same thing had I been in the position of Adam. And so would you. And God knew that. I think that's what makes the, the representative view work. And while it's, there may be exceptions to my illustration a minute ago about you, have, you would have done the same thing that Franklin Roosevelt did. Some of you may say, well, I wouldn't go to war at any cost. But here, God knows exactly what you would have done if you were placed in the same position. I, to prove that, I've chosen to sin. Tens of thousands, and if you ask my wife, hundreds of thousands of times since salvation. So it's, it's proof that I would have done the same thing. Now, I suppose if you had a person who was born with Adam's trend, uh, and they lived their whole life, and up to this point in their life, you met them, and they can honestly say, I have never sinned. Never sinned in my life. And it was honest, and it was the truth. Then maybe I would believe them. If they would say, no, if I was placed in the same position, I wouldn't have sinned. But until you can show me that person, I'm going to say that God knew that we would all have made the same decision that Adam made. So I've chosen to sin thousands and thousands of times during my lifetime to prove that I would have done the same thing that Adam did, but I did not exercise my volition and take the fruit from the hand of the woman. Adam did that. He chose to do that, representing me and everyone that would be born after him. But And I now share in the penalty. If the United States would have lost World War II, we would have all shared in the penalty of the decision to go to war. Now, is, this is a fair representation for one primary reason. The reason that, this, that I'm going to hold that this is a fair representation is because I know good and well I would have done the same thing. And I know that God knows I would have done the same thing. That's the first reason. The second reason, in my view, and again, I, I'm trying, I am humble about this. I'm not, uh, I hope I'm not being perceived in any other way. In my view, in the second place, the representative view best fits with Paul's line of reasoning in the entire section between chapter 5, verse 12, all the way through 21. We, either, we are either identified with Adam or with Christ. Remember, one man disobeyed death. One man obeyed life. We're going to be identified with one of only two. You're born identified with Adam, you either stay that way or you become identified with Christ. Only two choices, at least from a Christian perspective. We all begin our lives in association with Adam. We make a choice to either stay there or identify ourselves by faith with Jesus Christ. Now, third, Paul will later say that we were crucified with Christ. And this is on into chapter 6, verse 6. We were crucified with Christ. Now, follow with me here as we're finishing up. We're almost done. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, we sinned with Adam, if I may paraphrase. In chapter 6, he's going to say, we were crucified with Christ. Now, here's where I don't want to be perceived as being flippant or blasphemous at all. I wasn't there with Adam, and I wasn't even born when the cross took place. Yet Paul states that those are both facts. So he later says, we're crucified with Christ. We sinned in Adam. We were crucified with Christ. Now, we were not seminally 
in Christ when he was on the cross. In fact, Christ had no physical offspring. How we were, however, identified in a very real way with Christ on the cross. I hope you follow with me here. We were, in the same way, I believe, that we were identified with Adam as our representative head when it came to the first sin, we are identified now by a choice, by grace through faith, with Christ as our representative head. And though I wasn't there at the cross, I am so identified with him that Paul can say, we were crucified with him. So, in my view, the representative view best fits here. If you'd like some of the arguments for the seminal view, we'll talk about them afterwards. I'll be happy to be fair and give you both sides. But let me close with this. Regardless of which side you come down on with this particular line of discussion, you are going to be associated with one of two persons, either Adam or Christ, and you choose the association. An understanding of this fundamental concept is essential to our application of what Paul is going to teach us in the next chapter. You'll see as this material flows. We're a few minutes early. I'm going to close it there so that we can talk if we need to afterwards. Heavenly Father, I'm appreciative, so appreciative that the power of Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to overcome the power of Adam's disobedience. Father, I thank you so much that you did not leave us in just condemnation, but rather provided for us a way out. And Father, may we never shake our fist at you and say unfair, we would have done exactly the same thing that Adam did, and we've proven it many, many times during our lifetime. So Father, help us to not only understand this passage, but to take it now in the flow of the book, and to apply it in such a way that our spiritual lives may never be the same. And Father, I do want to pray one more time for my friend Fred Stowe and his family, for all those who are involved. I do pray that you would comfort them tonight as they go through this night of distress. And we'll ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.